0: The following episode of Annals on Call is brought to you by Annals of Internal Medicine. The views and opinions expressed by the hosts and participants during this episode are their own and do not necessarily reflect the views of the American College of Physicians, the editors of Annals of Internal Medicine, or the institutions that the speakers are affiliated with unless so identified. All relevant financial relationships have been mitigated. Information contained herein should never be used as a substitute for clinical judgment. For more episodes, links to CME and MOC, or to view disclosures, visit go.annals.org slash oncall.
1: Catheter ablation decreased the recurrence of atrial fibrillation and the AFib burden, and importantly, showed a mortality benefit with catheter ablation.
2: features an article from the Annals of Internal Medicine titled Early Rhythm Control Therapy for Atrial Fibrillation in Low-Risk Patients, a Nationwide Propensity Score Weighted Study. Joining us on this podcast is Dr. Harish Dapalaputi, who's Professor of Internal Medicine with a specialty in cardiology and electrophysiology. He's a highly awarded educator and author of over 50 articles in electrophysiology. We hope you learn more about atrial fibrillation management from this podcast. Harish, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. I thought of you because we'd had several discussions before about atrial fibrillation. And my understanding is over the last couple of years, there's been a controversy over whether we should use rate or rhythm control for people with stable atrial fibrillation. Maybe you could expand a little bit on that controversy.
1: First of all, uh, Dr. Center, thank you for having me on this. Uh, I appreciate that very much. Data from the early 2000s from trials, the the biggest one of which was the Affirm trial, showed that there was no difference between rate and rhythm control strategies. But as we are aware, there are big caveats to those trials, one being it was only with antiarrhythmic drugs and didn't include catheter ablation. So many patients in the rhythm control arm were not in sinus rhythm at the end of the trial, and they stopped taking antiarrhythmic drugs. And the second major thing was that, even though anticoagulation was recommended in both arms, people in the rhythm control arm were allowed to stop anticoagulation, and only about 70% in the rhythm control arm were taking anticoagulation. So, that being said, the recent trials, especially with catheter ablations such as Cabana and Casalev trials, showed that catheter ablation decreased the recurrence of atrial fibrillation and the AFib burden, and importantly, showed a mortality benefit with catheter ablation. So I think with we know that trying to achieve sinus rhythm with antiarrhythmic drugs is probably equivalent to rate control, but achieving sinus rhythm and maintaining sinus rhythm with catheter ablation is probably better than rate control.
2: As you know, I did a previous podcast on catheter ablation, I think it's the pulmonary vein. And could you just tell us a little bit about how long we've been doing that and uh, success rates, et cetera, because I think that's a big part of the story uh, that you just described to us. Uh, We started doing
1: pulmonary vein ablation since the late 1990s. And our strategy for doing ablation within the left atrium has evolved from ablating within the pulmonary veins to the osteo of the pulmonary veins to mostly around the posterior wall of the left atrium. Still, uh, uh, achieving pulmonary vein isolation is the cornerstone of any ablative procedure for atrial fibrillation. The success rates of catheter ablation also have improved over the years, but in general, they've been, I would say, in a very conservative manner, about uh, 70 to 80 percent at one year, and at five years, probably close to around 50 percent. But importantly, we don't need to eliminate atrial fibrillation to benefit from catheter ablation, as the CASLAF shows. If we decrease the atrial fibrillation burden significantly to less than 50%, that is sufficient. Elimination is not required to benefit from catheter ablation.
2: Excellent. So let's talk about the patients in this very interesting study from uh, Korea. And this is a propensity score type study, which we've done several times on this podcast. So the people that they included, can you sort of describe who is in this this particular study, and we'll contrast that with the eligibility for East apnet four. Sure.
1: So as as you alluded to, this is uh, on the Korean population observational study, claims based study that used a propensity score weighting. So they looked at all people who had atrial fibrillation diagnosis and then limited uh, it first to only new users. And they define new users as people that have had a prescription for rate or rhythm control or had catheter ablation only during the study period. So they should not have had any of these in the past several years, and they should have had these only during the study period, which was around from 2011 to 2015. And among these people, they further defined the group that had AFib diagnosed within the past one year, which was the inclusion criteria for the East AFNet-4. And that is what study population was.
2: Okay. So they're looking at people with, I think, it's, is it Chad vasque scores of like zero and one?
1: Yes. So they looked at everybody okay. and then they divided these into people that fit the eligibility for the East AFNet-4 and the people that did not uh, meet eligibility. The people that did not meet eligibility would be the people with CHATS-VASC of 0 or 1, whereas if you had chats 2 or more, they would fit eligibility for the EAST AFNET 4.
2: Right. And that study, if I understand, previously has shown the benefits of rhythm control.
1: Yes. The EAST 4 showed that rhythm control in people that have a diagnosis of HIV within the past one year was better in terms of the primary outcome of cardiovascular death, stroke, heart failure, hospitalization, acute myocardial infarction, uh, significantly compared to the usual therapy.
2: So using that as a standard, and I think they then duplicate that, then say, what about the zeros and ones, the people at very much lower risk of stroke?
1: Yes, and
2: no surprise,
1: even in the people with a low JASFAS score, Uh, rate, uh, rhythm control therapy was beneficial compared to usual therapy or rate control. The weighted hazard ratio in these uh, patients that had a low charge score was 0.81.
2: One of the things that everybody wants to know, both patients and general internists, is what about safety? Uh, That some of these patients have catheter ablation and some of these patients are on antirhythmics. And General internists disproportionately see the complications of anti-rhythmics uh, because they end up on uh, our service or in our clinic. And so we worry about that a lot. So what, what about these safety results? Uh,
1: absolutely. That's a good question. So the safety with uh, both eligible and ineligible patients, they looked at various safety parameters, get a significant bleeding requiring hospitalization or Adverse events related to rhythm control, and these can be complications of catheter ablation or complications from antiarrhythmic drug use. So those safety events were equal, uh, equivalent in both the eligible, in both the rate and rhythm control arms, in both eligible patients and ineligible patients. So there was essentially no difference in safety outcomes.
2: Great. Uh, and what was the what's the duration here? Because um, I guess the drug that, that I worry about the most is amiodarone, and, and I see a lot of patients on amiodarone, and uh, we have a long list of things we worry about whenever someone's on amiodarone. Am I just seeing a biased sample of the patients that I actually see? <laughs> yeah. oh,
1: good question. So the follow-up period, the, the total duration of the study was five years, but the median follow-up here was 2.7 years uh, compared to the median follow-up in the East 4, which was five years. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were people using amiodarone in addition to other antiarrhythmic drugs. And amiodarone, I should say, yes, it is not a first-line antiarrhythmic drug, but I think in all honesty, it has probably gotten more bad rap than what it should. Amiodarone is a very effective uh, rhythm control drug when used in the appropriate setting. And in fact, the recent guidelines, the European guidelines have moved amiodarone from class two recommendation to class one recommendation, still emphasizing that it should not be first-line drug. But once you've eliminated first-line drugs and monitor amiodarone safely, it is an okay drug to use.
2: So now I have a patient admitted to my service or comes into my clinic with atrial fibrillation. Uh, they've not yet seen a cardiologist. I make the diagnosis. Should I send all those people uh, to an electrophysiologist? And if if you see them, how do you work with patients to make a decision about management, about whether you're gonna do a uh, a procedure or use medications?
1: Okay. That's a big question that all of us have. Well, while it'd be ideal for every one of these patients with newly diagnosed patient uh, atrial fibrillation to see an electrophysiologist to discuss all possible rhythm options, including ablation, You and I know that it is not feasible or practical for all of these patients to be seen by an electrophysiologist in a timely fashion. But I think from this study and from the East AFNET 4, all providers with first contact with these patients, whether it is internists or general cardiologists, should be comfortable and advocate for a rhythm control strategy, preferably compared to rate control strategy. And there are some of these who would do very well with rhythm control, straightforward patients, then they can take their time to see an electrophysiologist. whereas people that have side effects or continue to have episodes despite anti medications probably should be seen earlier. Important to emphasize that this study and the EAST-FNET-4 did not necessarily say that catheter ablation is the choice in all patients. Less than 10% in this study and about 20% in the EAST-FNET-4 ended up having catheter ablation within the first two years. A rhythm control strategy is the key, not necessarily with catheter ablation.
2: Are there certain patients in whom doing an ablation is goes to like a first line uh, before you try rhythm controlled medications? Who are the patients that you are, that want to encourage us most to refer to an electrophysiologist? I think one is patients who are symptomatic, certainly.
1: Symptomatic with episodes of atrial fibrillation. The second, I would say, is mostly patient-driven. Patients that would really like to have uh, maintain sinus rhythm and they would not want to be in atrial fibrillation all the time. So it's a patient-driven factor. Those two are the main ones that I would say would need to see an arrhythmologist early. The third category, I would say, is with comorbidities that would make the usual rhythm control drugs uh, are difficult decision for patients uh, patients who have some coronary disease and say making the class 1c drugs such as plakinide and propafenon not an option in those patients probably seeing an cardiologist earlier rather than later would be beneficial
2: i think we did a previous podcast on heart failure with reduced ejection fraction and atrial fibrillation is are those patients doing fine with rhythm control, or do they need, uh, or do they generally need an ablation?
1: Yes, uh, th- that is uh, with patients with uh, heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. The data from the Cathlay of trial showed that catheter ablation was better than medical therapy. So preferentially, in in those patients, if we are advocating for rhythm control, we would try to consider uh, rhythm control with catheter ablation. Uh, knowing that with capture ablation, we are more likely to decrease the AF burden and therefore more likely to keep them in sinus rhythm.
2: Is there a difference in people who are in, in constant atrial fibrillation or those who have intermittent atrial fibrillation? And, and how should we think about those two groups at this time? So that is
1: a question that years ago, it was thought that whether you are in paroxysmal, persistent, or Uh, what is the impermanent atrial fibrillation, it was all the same. But as we have more data with being able to capture exactly how much AFib burden each one has, the burden of atrial fibrillation does matter. So people that have an atrial fibrillation all the time probably are not the same as people that have only paroxysmal episodes. We don't have enough information yet to make the decision for instance about anticoagulation differently with patients with paroxysmal persistent episodes. It's interesting that some of the east 4 trial or the CASEL-AF trial did not show any difference whatever the baseline burden of atrial fibrillation is. Not the east 4 but the Castle af trial. Even if the baseline burden was high, if you're able to decrease the burden to less than 50%, these people have the same benefit. So the bottom line, if you have more atrial fibrillation to begin with, these people are more likely to have had structural changes in the left atrium, such as fibrosis and remodeling, making them less likely to remain in sinus rhythm after ablation. So that should factor in the decision. The, the goal of catheter ablation is to decrease the burden. In people that have been in atrial fibrillation for a long time, If it may be less likely to keep them in sinus rhythm, and therefore they may not benefit as much with rhythm control.
2: One of the things you said early on is really starting to resonate with me. This study looked at people who had had atrial fibrillation for about a year or less. Is that correct? Yes. And so if we have a patient who has been in atrial fibrillation for three years, the approach would be quite a bit different for the reasons you just described, that they get remodeling and it's harder to decrease their atrial fibrillation burden. Is that correct? Absolutely. That's right. So the, the corollary to that is w- when we diagnose atrial fibrillation, we should be starting a plan for that, have an electrophysiologist that we can talk to if we're in practice or even if we're uh, doing hospital work, that we should figure out a way to interact with electrophysiologists to make a, make a decision as to whether or not there needs to be a referral down the road and an approach during that first year rather than waiting until the patient's had it for a number of years. Absolutely, a
1: coordinated approach from the outside is I think uh, the way to go, rather than wait until something happens when the referral will be initiated.
2: Right, And and that's also for intermittent atrial fibrillation. Yes, that's true. Harish, this has been very, very helpful. I think what I understand now is that there are advantages now to rhythm control that working with electrophysiologists, we can make decisions as to whether that rhythm control includes some catheter ablation and or some antiarrhythmics. And just as a final question, when you're using antiarrhythmics, which ones do you use the most? And what should we as general internists know about those when we're following those patients? Good question.
1: So with antiarrhythmics, if somebody is otherwise healthy and has no structural heart disease, no evidence of coronary disease, the class 1C drugs such as flecainide and propafenone are the best choices. They are very well tolerated and they're most effective. So that would be my first choice in those patients. Mm-hmm. People that have coronary disease but have preserved ejection fraction, I'd prefer Sotolol or dofetilide. And patients, other patients, patients that have heart failure, patients that have significant left ventricular hypertrophy, uh, any other major structural conditions, we really are left with either amiodarone or tronadron.
2: Great. Harish, this has been very, very helpful and uh, has improved my understanding of uh, the management of uh, the new onset of atrial fibrillation and the involvement with electrophysiology. So thanks so much for helping us. thank you so much for having me on, uh, Bob. It was wonderful. Now it's time for Bob's Pearls. This very interesting study and discussion clarifies, in my mind, the need for trying to decrease the atrial fibrillation burden in all patients who have atrial fibrillation. This concept of atrial fibrillation burden, or the percentage of time someone is in atrial fibrillation, is a new one for me and makes a lot of sense. The catheter ablation strategy is a very good strategy, but not a perfect strategy, and one still needs to anticoagulate. This study focused on patients who had had atrial fibrillation for less than one year. In our conversation, this now directs me that anyone with new atrial fibrillation needs to have a management plan developed over that first year, and that plan likely will include consultation with an electrophysiologist and a determination of whether they will do better with antiarrhythmic medications or with catheter ablation. Thank you very much for listening to our podcast.
0: Information contained herein should never be used as a substitute for clinical judgment. For more episodes, links to CME and MOC, or to view disclosures, visit go.annals.org slash oncall.